Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Dr. David Sklar. Dr. Sklar earned his doctorate at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and Dr. Sklar has held fellowships at numerous universities and institutions, including Harvard University, the University of Oxford, the University of Toronto, New York University, and the Center for Jewish History. Dr. Sklar is a postdoctoral research associate and lecturer with the program in Judaic Studies at Princeton University. And Dr. Sklar has written on a wide range of topics covering Jewish thought and Jewish history. Dr. Sklar recently edited The Golden Path, Maimonides Across Eight Centuries, which features highlights from the Hartman family collection of manuscripts and rare books. And uh, it's currently a Yeshiva University Museum exhibition, which opened May 9th and runs until the end of the year. And as you can see, and as we'll see later, it's just a it's a wonderful, beautiful, beautifully put together uh, book with uh, manuscripts and essays. And um, uh, we'll get right to it. Um, Maimonides, the Rambam. Thank you again, Dr. Sklar, for uh, your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Um, just to start off, the major opposition to Maimonides, the Rambam, during his lifetime, and how did that opposition, generally speaking, develop after his lifetime? So <clears throat> I think it's probably best to start in terms of the Rambam, understanding how impactful he was. Um, so he lived between 1138 and 1204 always within an Islamic context. He was born in Cordoba, uh, went to Fez under duress, family possibly, if not probably, converted to Islam for a short time. Um, made his way, ultimately, the last three and a half decades of his life, he was in Fastat, which is considered now Old Cairo. Um, and he was coming out of Spain. He was a philosopher, Um he was the descendant and sort of the scion of a very great rabbinic family. Um, in fact, he lists something like eight. When he, when he signs his name at one point, he, he lists um, eight predecessors, his father, grandfathers, and such, all of whom or most of whom were Dayanim, um, judges, that is. So, And he saw himself as this... Um, exceptional individual, which of course he was. Now, one of the things that he did, besides um, coming out of the own, his own Islamic and specifically Spanish con uh, context of um, using, appreciating, even idealizing Aristotle and rationalism, was that he saw himself as essentially when it came to rabbinic Judaism as producing or the, the having the ability and the capacity to produce a sort of... Um, a total understanding of what Judaism was and is. So he manifested this in this great work, the Mishnah Torah, which of course took him 10 years to, to produce. Uh, and it itself became controversial for a number of reasons. One was uh, philosophical concepts that he used, his devotion to Aristotle and the idea that ultimately you can use Aristotle uh, and philosophy, that is, uh, to meld it with traditional Judaism, the understanding of the Torah. Now, what this involved, of course, was a rational understanding of things, which meant that if you have something that sounds fantastical, 
um, sounds like a miracle, an open miracle, then really perhaps, or prophecy as an example, really is something that would have been uh, conveyed in a dream rather than something, you know, as if the laws of nature changed. So this itself was controversial in his own time, meaning within rabbinic Judaism. Uh, his adherence and his ultimately his the the his production of his own philosophical worldview was manifested most brilliantly and extremely complex com, complexly in the Marin Vulchim, the Guide of the Perplexed, which he wrote between 1186 and 1190 or 1191. Um, so that's one, and that was hugely influential. So philosophy was one aspect that was controversial even during his own time. But going back to the Mishnah Torah and the idea that he is sort of can provide a, a one-stop shop for what is Jewish law and ritual and life, um, what he did there was some people, I think, in general, will, will understand it as though he he saw it as replacing the Talmud. I don't think that's exactly what he was doing, but certainly for the vast majority of people, they were the, the intention was that they could consult the Mishnah Torah rather than attempting to engage with the Talmud, because I think from from the Rambam's point of view, people didn't actually understand what was what the Talmud was in its back and forth discussion, but frequently uh, where it did not actually resolve an issue. So what he was doing with the Mishnah Torah was actually to resolve issues as he saw them. But what he did when he produced it was to do two major things that uh, make it easy to to study, but also were hugely controversial from a rabbinic point of view. One was his methodology. He didn't really articulate a methodology. So that meant that when he was deciding on a halachic concept and ultimately on a legal principle, we don't know exactly what he was doing. Where, how did he reach this conclusion as, a, as an example? Now, I already mentioned philosophy, but the second aspect, um, one was methodology. And the second thing related to methodology is that he ultimately didn't cite his sources. So the lack of citation and the issue of methodology and the inclusion of philosophy were all controversial issues that were immediately taken up specifically with the Ravad, the Ravid, um, Abraham ben David of Pesquier, so that he was from Provence and Ashkenazic scholars in general at that time and then certainly in the following generations found this to be um, problematic, to say the least. Now, of course, it was, he, the Rambam was such a great figure, and he was so profound, and the Mishnah Torah was so profound, that even for those who didn't like it, and like what he was doing, they had to essentially address it. Um, the opposition to this continued. There is traditionally an understanding, of, based on traditional sources, of those who were defending the Rambam in the, time, in the 13th century, so I mentioned that he died in 1204, that his writings were actually burned, um, like specifically the Rambam's writings were burned, possibly by Jews. There's recent scholarship that challenges this notion. Certainly the Rambam's writings were burned like many other rabbinic texts in Paris in 1242 and then later in the 16th century uh, in Italy. But regardless, you didn't need Jews to burn their own texts, in essence, for it to be a controversy. It did continue uh, famously, there was a ban on philosophy that the Rashba uh, instituted. The ban specifically at that time, this was 1235, I think, uh, was really about what age people could study philosophy. Um, and the Rambam, in essence, epitomized this issue of what it meant to study and engage with with philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of a very long-winded 
explanation in terms of what the opposition was. It continued, but I think the important point is to is to recognize that even though there was opposition, um, everyone had to contend with the fact that the Rambam had produced what he did, meaning he was that authoritative of a figure. What's the significance um, of the language that the Rambam Maimonides wrote his works in, Arabic versus Hebrew, and are the translated works um, as reliable as the original Hebrew texts? Um, Okay, so the Rambam wrote primarily in Judeo-Arabic. Judeo-Arabic meaning Arabic, with a Jewish flavor, meaning sometimes Hebrew words. Um, and the writing itself was in Hebrew characters. So it's easily, we can we can most easily understand this as thinking in terms of Yiddish, for instance. That's like a Judeo-German. Um, Ladino would be like a Judeo-Spanish and, and so forth. Now, there's always a Jewish language in some place. There's Judeo-Persian as an example. So... Uh, now, during the Rambam's time, the vast majority of Jews lived under some Islamic uh, political entity, meaning in, in, within an Islamic context, and Arabic was the the uh, spoken language and the written language, although Hebrew itself was, of course, um, still used. I think the point that he wrote va- the, almost everything in Judeo-Arabic was that he wanted people to understand and to read. So that meant his commentary on the Mishnah, he was the first to write a comprehensive commentary on the Mishnah. Uh, the point was that he was going to write in Judeo, he wrote in Judeo-Arabic rather than Hebrew because he wanted this to be most easily accessible to people, which would really get us into thinking or asking the question about how much did people understand Hebrew, rabbinic Hebrew, Mishnahic Hebrew as, as an example. Um, so now his his works were translated almost immediately, meaning within his own lifetime. I should mention that the one work, the major work, um, which as I was just speaking of, that he did write in Hebrew was the Mishnah Torah, which itself was revolutionary. Uh, the fact is is that everything he wrote, because he was so impactful, <clears throat> virtually everything, especially the major uh, texts that were pertinent to all Jews. Um, were translated into Hebrew sometimes multiple times. Now, the question about um, are they reliable, it sort of gets into general translation questions. This is not my area. I can just give you my own opinion based on my experience and my understanding. Absolutely. Using the Rambam actually is a good example. So he wrote the Marinabuchin, the Guide of the Perplexed, in Judeo-Arabic. We have two good English translations and by good I mean usable English translations that people frequently use today. The first was by um, oh my gosh I'm suddenly forgetting his name it's the one that almost everybody will know of and the second that we stop talking about this his name will come to me it was first published in the 1880s in London um, and it's very readable and very accessible and it's been republished over and over and over then uh, in the second half of the 20th century, maybe in the 60s, forgive me for not remembering exactly, Shlomo Pines, a uh, scholar in Israel, he translated a much more, he produced a much more literal translation, uh, which is more reliable in the sense of, okay, so what was Maimonides intending or what did the words actually mean? But of course, when you have a readable translation, 
then it means it's more accessible. But when you have something like that, it means that you're putting your trust in the translator. So there's sort of this give and take between what if a translation is sort of stilted, but it's more literal, as opposed to, okay, maybe I can understand the flow better. Um, and the, this, there's going to be a new translation coming in the, in the next few years. And um, uh, Phil Lieberman is one of the translators. He's a, a scholar at the Vanderbilt University. Um, because of new understanding of the language and of the context, and uh, it gets to that question of reliability, it's sort of how much can we understand based on what's being produced? But the fact is, is especially with the Rambam, especially with the Marenubal theme, even if I knew Jedi Arabic, I'm not sure that I would understand the text. Okay. But the original translations were to Hebrew? Yes. And and did the Rambam see those original? Who did those? And so, did he see some of those translations? He would have seen, and he actually was involved in helping. So one of the translations was by Shmuel Ibn Tibbin, who lived in Provence, the Ibn Tibbin family, uh, the little family of translators and he was writing they never met but uh, Shmuel Ibn Tibbin was writing to the Rambam asking questions about what did you mean by this and how would I translate this and and concepts like this in order to understand the Rambam better in order to help produce a better translation uh, whether the Rambam saw the final results I'm not sure but um, so that is very interesting to consider because it's sort of an on the you know, in, in the moment translation that's taking place there with the author. Okay. What was the relationship uh, between Maimonides, the Rambam, and Yemenite Jewry? And how did Maimonides, the Rambam's writings, impact on the schism within the break within that community? Okay, so um, the Rambam is remembered as this great halachic, uh, the sizer, the scholar, as a philosopher, as a physician, um, but he was also a communal leader. And that meant both locally and broadly speaking. So we have hundreds of letters to or from him in some respect, usually considered to be chuvot, like responsa literature, where he's getting a question about something, you know, let's say halachically based or ritually based, something like that. And he offers an answer. Now, um, but his position and his stature meant that he got he got lots of requests or lots of questions relating to um, not just specific ritual issues, but sort of general concerns. And Yemenite Jewry, Yemen was not exactly, it's not as though it were, it, um, you know, uh, far flung, so to speak. Yemen was an important post um, between Mediterranean trade and the Indian trade. Um Anyway, uh, he famously wrote Igeret Teman, which is this epistle to Yemen, which uh, he took the opportunity to provide a sort of um, a hope or strength to Yemenite Jewry who were struggling under two primary issues. One was the fear of conversion, sort of a, an issue of possible forced conversion. And the other was a, a seemingly a messianic pretender, meaning somebody who had presented himself as, as the Messiah. This was written in around 1172, and it seemed to have offered so much chizuk, uh, like so much um, spirit uh, and help, that Yemenite Jews in general, at least for the next several centuries, really became committed to the Rambam. That is, like, followed Maimonides 
to the T, especially when it came to Marina Bukhim. On the one hand, halachically speaking, legally speaking, and ritually. And on the other, uh, with the devotion to philosophy, where you have not just the the study of Marina Bukhim, but actually other philosophical texts that follow the Rambam. Now, the thing about Yemen, Nigeria, it's a fasc- fascinating cultures uh, that develop there. Uh, it's not a single entity, so to speak. And um, in the 16th, but really, really, really the 17th and the 18th centuries, Yemenite Jewry underwent a change. Um, if today you, let's say, go to a Yemenite minyan, you may know that there's something called Shami and Baladi. So Shami and Baladi basically refer to two types or two approaches within Yemenite communities. Uh, Baladi is this sort of understanding that this is what the Yemenite tradition, ha- quote unquote, has been or always has been, so, so, uh, so and so forth. Shami is like refers to like the Levant, which is basically meant that there was an influence from cultures, Jewish cultures, external to Yemen. That meant, really went back to the 17th and the 18th centuries with the influx of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is something that developed and really took off first locally, like in sort of smaller groups in the 16th century, the mid-16th century, where we think in terms of like the Ari and Moshe Cordovero and Chaim Vital and such. Uh, not in that order, actually. And um, But by the 17th and certainly 18th centuries, you had Kabbalistic influence in Yemen. That meant that there were going to be changes to rituals and changes to the prayer book, which were major serious considered to be very serious so at that point the question was well, how do we view this is within yemen how do we view the rambam and our strict adherence to the rambam for all of these times uh, for you know for all of these centuries uh and there were scholars within yemen and it sort of continued into the uh, the 19th centuries where there was an attempt to sort of bring them together with the rambam again this great rationalist and a philosopher um gets into other larger issues in terms of how the Rambam is viewed mystically speaking, what is mysticism as opposed to Kabbalah, you know, and there were stories among Kabbalists uh, that, oh, the Rambam must have become a Kabbalist at the end of his life and things like that, almost to legitimize the Rambam or themselves really. And, you know, comparing to the Rambam as this great authoritative figure who must have, must have recognized the truth, quote unquote, of Kabbalah. So within Yemen, um, straight until the early 20th century, you had, uh this basically between the 18th and into the 20th century you have this sort of split between shami and baladi um and i can't say that it ultimately was resolved uh if you go it still still exists today it does yeah wow amazing um the rambam's writings are often cited or used as a source for healthy living I believe if, even in the in the compilation here, there was a ad in the Yiddish forward that had <laughs> the Rambam endorsing bran as a yes. healthy product, which which uh, they've got a big kick out of that in the family. Um, what medical treaties did the Rambam compose? How serious were they? How well relevant were they in his time? And do they have any relevance whatsoever today? So. Uh, we can take the last one first. Scholarship-wise, things like this, any medical, anything medicine-related, science-related, 
to me, they're always relevant. It doesn't mean that you are going to uh, start practicing medicine based on what the Rambam said, or start to imagine, um, you know, that the sun revolves around the earth because that's what he said, you know, scientifically speaking. So yes, they're still relevant from a historical point of view. Um, so the Rambam, he produced, he, he practiced as a physician. He seems to have studied and known medicine, although he doesn't, he didn't comment it, uh, him, on it himself as to how he learned about medicine and science. Uh, he seems to have learned it or possibly learned it from his own father or within the family back in Spain. And then when they had gone to Fez, um, he certainly was practicing medicine in earnest in the, towards the latter few decades of his life. Uh, he had been in business with his brother, David, uh, who died in a sea voyage in 1177. And the Rambam actually refers to his own depression over this. Um, and at which point we know that he was then one of the physicians at the court uh, in Cairo. Cairo was established the seat of the caliphate. Um, now, the way the treatises were written, it seems, is that they could have, they, they were sort of commissioned. You could have a question about something this is coming from a wealthy, you know, from an elite, in essence, uh, have a question about some sort of ailment or some sort of uh, desire. So let's say um, there's a there's a particular ailment or it could be related to diet and you commission something to be written. And Maimonides then or some other position in general, but like in this in the, in the cases that we have, Maimonides would have authored a relatively small treatise on this particular issue. And it would it, it would have then been copied for its own, you know, for the edification of those who, other people who find it relevant. Um, best known is that this work that was put together called Pirkei Moshe, which is basically aphorisms, aphorisms of Moses. These are medical, this is medical knowledge. Um, in the book that we produced for this exhibition, because the book that you referred to is sort of a companion to the exhibition, uh, there's an article by Svi Langerman, who was a professor at Bar-Ilan University and a great scholar of Maimonides and of Yemenite Jews and of science. Um, his article uh, concerns anecd- quote-unquote anecdotal evidence, the use of anecdotal evidence, uh, and it's it's fascinating in terms of what was what it meant, the use of evidence in terms of how you're going to then prescribe. And the Rambam refers to various how he would go about these things and also um i guess getting to your question about how serious was this this was extremely serious this was as serious to those interested in medicine as anything else that he produced you know related to philosophy or to halacha. Um, and he himself was highly regarded like i mentioned he lived within a islamic context and we have um examples actually i was going to pull this up to read this there is a um a poem from a 13th century physician who didn't know maimonides but knew his son uh maimonides had one son named abraham abraham ben arambam and in this poem this is how he if you don't mind i'll just read read this uh so again this is not a it's a near contemporary of the rambam but it really represents how maimonides was viewed uh, external, meaning outside of the Jewish community. I see that Galen's medicine is for the body only, but Maimonides' medicine is for mind and body. 
If he were to treat time with his medical knowledge, he would cure it of ignorance with knowledge. And if the full moon were to seek his medical advice, the fullness it claims would be fulfilled. And he would treat on the day of its fullness, its spots and cure it on the day of its invisibility of its sickness. In essence, the Rambam was so highly regarded, he you know, received this praise from uh, from another Muslim scholar. Okay. How did Maimonides the Rambam come to be what some may call a mirror? Different people, different groups look at the Rambam and they see themselves, their own reflection. Everyone wants to adopt the Rambam as theirs. How did that develop over time? That's an enormous question and an excellent one. Uh, it, I think it started with his own authority in his own lifetime, meaning he was, he, he was a great scholar in his own time, extremely highly regarded in his own time. He also produced a massive amount. Um, he didn't just produce I mean, in essence, everything he did was revolutionary. For instance, as I mentioned before, his he was the first to author an, a sort of a total commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah Torah itself was revolutionary in, this, in the sense that it was even a legal code, let alone the way he did it, and that it encompassed all of Jewish thought and ritual and life, including things that were not pertinent then, meaning something related to the temple service, with the temple no longer in existence. Um, his philosophical texts, and he had other treatises. The guy, the guy of the perplexed, is only one, you know, the sort of the the major philosophical text, but he had others. So these are things that today in the modern world we would compartmentalize. We would say, okay, somebody is an expert in one particular field, but they would not be an expert in the in the various, you know, across fields. But in his own time, he was in essence this great figure and a profound intellectual who I, I'll mention again, though, was also a committed communal leader. Um, so anything he wrote, even when there was opposition, like how we started this, had to be con- not just consulted, but contended with in essence. Um, I think what you really are touching on, though, is what is referred to as reception history, which is it, how something is received and then what happens, it all sort of takes on a, a life of its own. Um, and which case you have copies of something and then they are copied. And if they are highly regarded and then you have commentaries on a particular text that is in essence, it snowballs and it gets greater and greater. Now, the interesting thing about the Rambam is that you could generally say about reception history, well, at some point, something just sort of the influence wanes. And in Maimonides case, it did not. Um, it does get back to your question, the previous question about, well, are his medical treatises still relevant? So no, not exactly, not in that way, but halachic texts and philosophical texts remain, there's a profundity there. Now, um, taking this into the modern world, though, I think with this reception idea is that who ultimately claims, um, let's say, who, who ultimately will adopt the Rambam has an influence as to how it will then be propagated. So, for instance, today, in our own time, um, we see, on Hanukkah, we see 
menorot all over the world, chanukiyot all over the world, with the straight arms like this. Now, this is a Chabad practice. This is why we see it all over the world. El Babita Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, had, uh, in his view, this was the way the menorah was supposed to look. It's based on a famous image, which is in a manuscript uh, of the commentary on the mission, which is today housed, well, presently kept by the Bodleian Library in Oxford, but today, actually right now, is in the exhibition at the Yeshiva University Museum, um, where this menorah, you know, possibly in the hand of Maimonides, appears in this straight arm. Now, Menachem Mendel Schmierson was one of the most influential Jews of the 20th century, of the modern period. So had he not found a particular affinity or had an affinity, uh, a particular affinity for the Rambam, um, we might not be seeing you know, Hanukkiyot like this all over the world. But in addition, in, 19, in the 1980s, you know, Chabad instituted this sort of daily study of the Mishnah Torah. So the specifics of that, I don't think are particularly relevant or not, or particularly not necessary to go into as much as the recognition that when we're looking at reception, who has influence and how they appreciate or ultimately propagate a particular idea, I think is crucial here. And the Rambam is somebody who was so, had such vast knowledge and ultimately produced a vast amount of material that, um, over time, anyone could look at the Rambam, even as things were changing, social and political change in the modern world, still people look to the Rambam. Um, and uh, in the 20th century, you find innumerable images of the Rambam, where now our artists are taking this up. You know, there's a way to trace this back too into the 18th century. Uh, but once it sort of appears once, and then another time, it can snowball, I think. Um, what was the overall Christian view of Maimonides, the Rambam, and what was the Muslim one? How did they differ in their views? I know this is a very general question, yeah, come, go, going over many periods of, of, of history, but Christian view, Muslim view. So I wouldn't say that there are any general views as much as we have specific examples. I mentioned, I read that poem Right. Um, from a 13th century physician and poet. So that the Muslim, the Muslim view of Maimonides would have related to appreciating his abilities as a physician and his dedication to philosophy. Because his study of philosophy comes from an Islamic context. Uh, the Christian view also initially would be philosophy like Aquinas studied Maimonides. You had Maimonidean texts that were translated into Latin. Um, so there's also philosophy in medicine. Now, after the medieval period, there remains an interest within the Christian world, not so much in the Islamic world. Uh, so that in the 16th century, you have additional Maimonidean texts that are being translated into Latin including he has this letter that he had written to ra a group of rabbis in Provence on, uh, it's called the, basically this letter on astrology. I mean, they were concerned about the Messiah and also this issue of astrology. There's an interest in astrology, but this seemed, this is irrational. And therefore, what do we do with this? And Maimonides writes about this. So that was translated into Latin. Um, this gets into Christian scholarship in the 16th, 17th century, also connected to Christian Hebraism, where there's a Christian understanding or appreciation for going back 
in essence, to uh, try and understand Christian theology from an quote-unquote original Jewish or original rabbinic point of view. So um, now what's fascinating in the really latter half of the 17th and the early half of the, the, the early 18th century is that there's sort of a legitimate, uh, sincere study of Maimonides and the Mishnah Torah connected to an overall, um, for some Christian scholars, the study of the Mishnah. Um, and so actually in the exhibition, we have an example um, of something written by Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton himself would use the, use the Rambam in two cases. Uh, one, he was attempting to reform the calendar. Uh, the Gregorian calendar wasn't adopted in England until the 1750s, and the, Newton was involved in trying to, um, he, he was attempting to reform the calendar, and so he looked at Maimonides, um, his laws of the new moon. And, and another case as well, and that whole, that the context for that was a general appreciation of the Rambam in, you know, in those centuries uh, within the Christian world. The um, famous phrase from Moses to Moses, none arose like Moses, linking um, the Rambam Maimonides to the original Moses of the Bible. Um, who coined that phrase? And what do you think its significance is? It's um, a great question. I don't have an answer as to who coined it. I've tried to figure it out. Um, it's noticeable in the 16th century and until today. Um, it's actually something that was used to also refer to the Ramah, Moshe Eserlis, to the Ramchal, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who lived in the 18th century. So the Ramah lived in the 16th century, Ramchal was in the 18th century. Also refers, to, I, I saw examples of it referring to Mendelssohn, Moses Mendelssohn, and the Moses Montefiore. In the 19th century. Now, for the latter figures, it seems to be a comment on Maimonides, associating these individuals with how great Maimonides was. Um, with Maimonides himself, with the Rambam, there really is, first of all, the name Moses is not used. We don't have Talmudic figures named Moses, as far as I know. Um and it seems to say it's it's almost as though he's the lawgiver, you know, potentially related to the the profundity of the of Mishnah Torah. Um, I think, you know, you could sort of really contemplate what it's supposed to mean and the association with the biblical Moses, um, what it says about ourselves, and sort of this rejuvenation or renewal, constant renewal. Um, but I never really, I have not determined who coined the phrase, what it's you know, what it's its earliest uses is. Is the Rambam's Maimonides a golden path? Is that a Jewish version of Aristotle's golden mean? And, and how do people apply that in daily life today? So in essence, his Shvil Azahav, it this is based on Aristotle's golden mean. Yes. In essence, from, from the Rambam's point of view, Aristotle was the greatest He'd reached like the epitome of thinking. Um, it's just that Jews and he himself have have the Torah. So like with the Torah, there's something, you know, a whole additional component that Aristotle was missing. Um, 
the Rambam is really using it in the like the opening of uh, the Mishnah Torah where he he, he really addresses it. Um, it's supposed to be the guiding principle in the way we live, involving balance and harmony and rationalism. I think patience is something to consider. Um, humility is something. Integrity. I mean, these are the things that at least that, that come to mind for me. Um, but it's it's not easy. I mean, is this is this like a, a prelude to the Musser, to you know morals, to the Musser movement? In other words, does the Musser movement look at this golden mean of Maimonides and use it? I I don't think so because I don't see the Musser movement as being about balance or in in some cases all that rational. It's because the Rambam himself, I mean, there's a, it's an interesting thing to try to contemplate. You can't really psychoanalyze somebody who's not in front of you. Uh, but to consider the Rambam as a human being and his personality, uh, there is an element of patience and humility, which is a, astonishing considering that he also speaks with profound authority. So how do you have humility when you clearly regard yourself so highly? But but there's a way to do that if you consider ration if you use a rational approach to things. I, you know, he's going to compare himself, presumably, you know, within society to others, and in order to try to sort of find out where he rests related to other intellectuals. Um, it's not something that we see all that often. I don't know. I I can't think of anyone who really embodies this. Maybe I'm not an expert in Rabbi Sachs. I'm just thinking of like Lord Jonathan Sachs as to whether that he looked to the Rambam specifically and this idea of this golden path and, you know, this, this meet, this middle road. Um, it's not easy. It, it sounds like someone who's able to apply this, that's just like a formula for tremendous peace of mind because everything is just so balanced, you know, and people, yes, are looking, that's an, people are looking for peace of mind today, you know, how do I just, you know, how do I get that? So it definitely is something where you have to stay above the fray, but it's funny because I don't know that it's a formula. The Rambam has something very interesting that he refers to in Marina Bulfim. It's like a passing thing because he wrote this sort of over a number of years and he was writing, writing it in essence in piecemeal as letters um anyway he he idealizes it it's for like the ideal student that the ideal individual who can who can contemplate and ultimately wrestle with and ultimately bring together this idea of rationalism of philosophy and the torah itself even though they seem like they like they may be in conflict and at points certainly early on he refers to this notion that uh, you know, to the individual who's reading this, who's studying this, who wants to embody this, that you don't get angry, don't even get upset, don't be concerned with anybody who doesn't, who cannot and does not follow such a path. <clears throat> if you're somebody who's committed and you have integrity and you think in terms of truth, at least for myself, you know, I can get upset if somebody is not like that. And the Rambam is referring to the situation where it's not your concern. It's not something to, you know, you have to sort of stay focused, but that means that you also have to almost, you have to sort of stay nimble, I think, 
So I don't know that it's formulaic. I think philosophically speaking, um, it's a lot more complicated than that. But it does involve, um, you know, in principle, it involves balance. Tell us a little bit about the um, Yeshiva University's exhibition. How did it come together? How did you put it all together? How did you get all the manuscripts? How did you get all the different players involved and, and bring the Hartman collection and then all the essays? Just take us through what must have been a, sure. uh, you know, a, a long and probably very fulfilling process. It was definitely long and fulfilling. I'm happy to be done with it. Um, it's still so, going on, though. I mean, it is, but the work itself was a killer. Um, so, um, about about 15 years ago, I was. I should start this way. The Hartman family collection is. It it belongs to Bob and Debbie Hartman of Chicago. So Bob Hartman started, he's singularly focused on Maimonides. Uh, and about 30 years ago, he started collecting manuscripts and early printed books related to Maimonides. And about 15 years ago, he hired me to start writing about what he had just piece by piece, um, cataloging it, but giving some larger context stories about what I could find, if there are notes and what do we know about, you know, the actual life, so to speak, of these objects let alone what the texts refer to and that sort of thing. Um, I used to work in the special collections of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. And JTS, this J the JTS Library, really has the greatest Judaica rare book collection or rare collection ever assembled. So I was co-curating exhibitions then. And uh, I had been basically Sharon Lieberman Mintz, who uh, some of your uh, viewers may may be aware of she's a she's a curator of Jewish art at, at JTS and she also is the senior consultant at Sotheby's a senior consultant about Judaica at, at, at Sotheby's she put me in touch with the Hartmans and so over the that was about 15 years ago and over the next several years I was writing and he had something like 50 to 60 pieces and a few years ago just before the pandemic he reached out we were always in touch but he said he was ready to have an exhibition I'd written something like 150 or 200 pages of a catalog <clears throat> so we reached out to the YU Museum, um, and they were, this is like within the pandemic and then post-pandemic, really ready to go forward with something like this. It's the first major exhibition that they can put on, uh, that they are putting on, you know, since the since before the pandemic. And so the Hartman Collection is really the core of the exhibition. And then um, the Wyoming Museum brought on Gabe Goldstein, who used to be the he, he used to be a curator at, at the Wyoming Museum and now is interim director. But they brought him on as, in essence, as project director. And Gabe said to me, let's make this not just about the Hartman Collection itself, but use it. And what else can we get? And so we reached out to the Bodleian Libraries of Oxford, which include autograph manuscripts. Uh, we reached out to JTS to the Royal Danish Library in Copenhagen for illuminated manuscripts. We have pieces from the National Library of Israel, from HUC in Cincinnati. And the basic idea um, was to take, using the Hartman Collection as the core and as, or as its own path, to start with the Rambam, because we actually have autographed manuscripts from the Rambam, meaning his own hand, and follow this through the centuries until today. Um, 
and it was a very long process and very intense but um it it's it's great that we were able to do this and we worked with a I worked very, very closely with a designer named Barbara Sir, who works with the Smithsonian uh, and uh, drove her crazy with all these questions and trying to change things. But ultimately, we produced something that I think looks beautiful. Okay. Um, we, we, we're, we, we're instituting this this new feature on this podcast, uh, uh, Dr. Sklar. I think you're the first one that we're going to be actually doing it. We call this now, for lack of a better, the our rapid response round, where we just Quick questions, quick answers, which is totally not fair, but well, you know, we're going to try it out uh, for this one. Um, Maimonides, the Rambam's most significant work, one pick. Mishatara. Okay. Um, the Maimonides' legacy today, how, how would you sum up his legacy, the Rambam's legacy today in 2023? Do I have to use one word or can no, I say no, 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 this is a, this is not a one word. I, if there were one word, I would say profound. Okay. Uh, how to describe the legacy, I think, is virtually impossible. But there is a joke about my monodies as an M.Y. So you referred to this before about why do people see themselves always in, in the Rambam? So even separate from who he was as a person. His legacy is that everybody sees themselves in him. Okay. Ten adjectives to describe Maimonides. Oh, my goodness. Have to count them? No. Um, you can round commit, them. Fine. Committed. Um, okay, so committed, philosopher, or philosophical. I'm not sure how to describe an adjective. Use the adjective. So committed. A philosopher, legalist, father, brother, son, thoughtful, intense, difficult, hopeful. Okay. If Maimonides was alive today, with what Jewish group would he identify with? None. None. Got it. That's fine. That's fine. And and if he were alive today, what would he think about how his works um, are being studied? Especially the Mishnah Torah. What would he think of what's happening to, to how people study that? tremendous uh, work i think he would think that people aren't doing it well that they're not doing it to the appropriate level at which he expected that would be a sort of but i think that he had this multi-layered way of viewing people and society so that would be an initial point and then he would probably appreciate that people are studying it at all not on a not on a, an egotistical level but the you know with recognition that what he produced is what should be studied okay at least they're studying it somewhat um i'll just throw this out there i i have wondered as i worked because i worked for the last few years just on this um wondered how he would view me in all of this and I don't think it would be all that favorable, honestly. Just that's the kind of person I think he had this extreme um, bar that he set. 
And yet, because of this multi-layered point of view that I just referred to, um, I don't know that he would express that necessarily. He would have been very patient with you. <laughs> yes, very well put. <laughs> okay. Um, this has been fascinating. Obviously, this is just a bit, uh, we always call it the tip of the iceberg, but I urge all our viewers and listeners, as I did, simply go online, Amazon, click of a button, and um, free delivery anywhere in the world. And it's, it's really a, a magnificent, beautiful work. And um, anyone that finds themselves in um, in uh, Washington Heights um, through uh, the end of the year. Um, oh, it's not. I'm just sorry to interrupt. It's actually it's downtown. It's oh, not downtown. Washington Heights. I'm sorry. Okay. Hawaii Museum is in the oh. Center for Jewish History on 16th Street between okay. 5th and 6th Avenue. Uh, I stand corrected. And if you're in Manhattan or in the greater New York area, please um, visit the um, the museum exhibition. Uh, Dr. Scarf, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank very you very much. much.